this morning. Uh, open the eyes of our minds and our hearts and help us to indeed hear you speaking to us personally in a living and active way uh, such that we increasingly live lives which bring you honor and glory and which reflect the gospel. Amen. In September 2011, Lawrence Russell Brewer, a death row inmate in the state of Texas, was executed. Brewer was one of three white supremacists who back in 1998 had dragged a black man along a road, chained to the back of a pickup truck until he died. They had wrapped a heavy logging chain around his ankles and pulled him along about four kilometers of the road as the truck swerved from side to side. Uh, the victim, James Bird, remained conscious throughout most of the ordeal. And after he died, the murderers drove on for another kilometer before dumping his torso in front of an African-American cemetery and going on to a barbecue. Asked if he had any regrets, Brewer said, no, I'd do it all over again to tell you the truth. How does that story make you feel? Angry, horrified, disgusted. Discrimination is a very ugly thing. But could it be that there is discrimination lurking in our hearts and being worked out in our behavior? And that is the uncomfortable question that James now focuses on as we come to chapter 2 of his letter. And the message of this passage is that, firstly, discrimination is a big danger for all of us as believers. It's a big deal. And it grieves God's heart. And it's serious. So, uh, discrimination is a big danger. Uh, chapter 2 starts by stating the principle. Uh, show no favoritism. Chapter 2, verse 1. And my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Now, the Hebrew word rendered favoritism here has the sense of uh, making distinctions based on uh, external considerations, maybe appearance or race, uh, religion, color, age, or social status. When we show favoritism, we treat someone better than others because of such factors. Now, on the other side of the coin to favoritism is discrimination. In discrimination, we treat someone worse because of our prejudice. So, I show favoritism to person A who I treat better, and I discriminate against person B who I treat worse. As Christians, uh, we must not do that. We mustn't treat people differently because of how they look or where they're from or what they do or anything else. Again, uh, verse 1, uh, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. You see, faith and favoritism, they are incompatible. We can't hold them together. 
Uh, true Christian faith seeks to love people without discrimination. Uh, Christ, of course, calls us to love all people. Uh, we are not just to love ourselves, but also to love our neighbors. And we're not just to love our neighbors, but also our enemies. And when you think about it, that really covers everyone. Uh, fair enough, you might say. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, discrimination is an ugly thing. Uh, it's widespread in the world. Uh, I even see it in my workplace. But personally, you may say, that's not me. I'm not guilty. Uh, perhaps James's readers thought the same thing. And so he goes on to give them an example of favoritism far closer to home in the church. Verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There it is, that discrimination. That discrimination comes uh, in various shapes and sizes. Of course, there's racial discrimination, and that's a big issue actually in the early church. Uh, we see this whole issue of Jew and Gentile. But there's also discrimination based on age, or nationality, or sex. But the one James goes for here is treating people differently because of their wealth and their status, uh, social discrimination. Uh, if you were with us last week, in chapter 1, verse 27, we were given three hallmarks of true Christianity, true religion. Firstly, controlling the tongue. Uh, secondly, caring for the needy. And thirdly, not being worldly. And what James was doing there was introducing three themes which he's then going to unpack in the rest of his letter. Uh, of course, read chapter 3 of James, it's all about the tongue. Uh, chapter 4 is all about worldliness. But here in chapter 2, it's all about caring for the needy. James's accusation is that rather than caring for the needy as we should, we actually discriminate against them. And it's interesting that James gives this example of social discrimination in an open letter and devotes so much space on the issue. Because you see, it suggests that this must have been a pretty big problem in the early church. It's not hard to imagine it's going on, of course, then, but also in churches today. Uh, before I came to this church, uh, there was an occasion when I was in the center of Sydney and uh, we were sitting out, I traced myself, eating a meal in the uh, Chinatown, and this Aboriginal man came up and uh, was basically indicating he was hungry. Uh, so I said to the proprietor, oh, um, you know, come and buy him a, a meal as well, uh, thinking that uh, she would show him to a seat and uh, give him a meal. Uh, well, she sort of rushed away and brought him a meal, although it was a takeaway meal. Here you go. Uh, she didn't want that sort of clientele at, at her restaurant. Uh, but I got started talking with a guy, and he said, you could start talking, he said, will you come with me and meet some of my friends? So I walked with him, 
Uh, we went over to Central Station and met some of his friends, and I sat down and talked with them. And in the course of conversation, it uh, became evident that some others of them were hungry. And so I said, oh, can we go and get a meat pie for you, maybe from the 7-Eleven over there? He said, great. Uh, another person said, oh, I need to go and see my family down in uh, Campbelltown. So I said, I'll buy you a ticket. So I did. And we just had a great conversation. And at the end of that conversation, they said, uh, we would like to come to your church. Because I'd mentioned I was at a church. And I thought... I just don't have any confidence that if I took them to my church, which was at that time uh, a basically white Anglo-Saxon North Shore church, I didn't have any confidence that they would be received and welcomed. Uh, I had to be involved in a church in Redfern down the road, which uh, I thought was far more geared up to caring for them, so I did point them to that church. But it was sad, really, that I had that real concern. If I brought them to my church, I don't think they'd be welcomed. Imagine you were in my situation... And if they said, I want to come to your church, what level of confidence would you have that you could bring them here even and that they could be welcomed if their people are very different to us from a different social economic group? Imagine the scenario that you're at a party and half the people at the party are people similar to yourself, maybe Christians and maybe from the similar racial group, but the other half of the party are from a different religion, Maybe they're Muslims, and maybe they're Hindus, and they're very different to you. What would you do? Who would you spend your time with? Would it be with the group you're comfortable with, or would you reach out and speak with and mix with that other group? You see, to not do so would be a form of discrimination against them. It would be a failure to love all people without discrimination. So, the question is, how do we treat people who we come across who are different to us socially? Uh, Maybe people who are working class, who are unemployed. People who are homeless, who are from a different culture, who are from a different religion. If they were come to a service here, how would we respond? I think we do a reasonable job of welcoming any visitor when they first walk through the door. But I think the issue for us as a congregation is in the longer term. Do we keep making an effort with them socially in the months that follow, especially if they are very different to us? Are we inclusive? Or do, after a while, we revert back to socializing with the people in the church with whom we are most familiar and with whom we are most comfortable? How do we treat people who are different to us in the everyday run of our lives? Uh, Do we seek to reach out to them? Or are they just invisible to us? Uh, Do we walk past them? Uh, Do we not see them? Maybe those at the bottom of the food chain at work, if you like, the kitchen staff, the security person, the cleaners, those who are different to us at the school gate or in the scouts group. Uh, It was the great Christian uh, writer Francis Schaeffer who used the phrase, in God's eyes there are no little people. James's principle here has far wide-ranging application, but how concerned should we be about this issue? Uh, James says this in verse 4, have you not discriminated among yourselves 
and become judges with evil thoughts. Now, the word translated here as discriminated was also used in chapter 1, verse 6, of the doubting, double-minded person with the divided heart. So, you see, you could also translate it here as, are you not divided within yourselves? You see, social discrimination is another symptom of a divided heart, rather than one which is united and integrated. And such thinking, we're told, is evil. How big a deal is it? Well, we're going to go on to see it is a very big deal, because the rest of the passage makes this very clear. Uh, James continues to apply this general principle to this issue of the poor and the needy. And what we see next is that discrimination is totally out of line with God's perspective. Look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Uh, Those who are poor in the eyes of the world are the people whom the world despises, the people who the world marginalizes. And yet, with the great twist of irony, they are the ones to whom God has chosen to give the gift of faith. Uh, God, of course, has not chosen all of the poor without exception, but He has chosen um, lots of them, certainly more than the rich. Uh, They are poor in worldly terms, but rich in the department that really counts, spiritually rich. Uh, They are rich in faith now, and they are destined to inherit the eternal kingdom of God. The poor have a special place in God's purposes, in His saving purposes. It's interesting when you look at the uh, social makeup of the early church in the first century, because the majority of them, it would seem, were poor. Now, that's the assumption in the letter of James, which we're studying together. Uh, In verse 5, it refers to those who are poor in the eyes of the world. And of course, when you look at the church in Corinth, uh, that is especially evident. Uh, It's stated explicitly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26 says this, Brothers, uh, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. To our minds, we think, don't we, that surely the cause of Christ will be best served by the conversion of famous and powerful people, the celebrities. Uh, Surely we think that will give the Christian movement credibility. Think of the PR. And yet, of course, God's ways are not our ways. And the proud He casts down and the humble He lifts up. And through what set of eyes, the question is then, will we view people? 
Uh, is it a worldly set of eyes, or will we view people through God's eyes? Uh, do we see each person as a creature made in the image of God? Do we see each person as equally valued in the eyes of God? You see, when we discriminate against people, uh, we are making a value judgment. Uh, we've made an assessment that in some way, this person is less valuable, uh, less important, or less worthy of our time and our effort. And yet, when we look at people through God's eyes, everything changes. We see this person has equal dignity and equal value in God's eyes. And so, if we dishonor such people, we're actually then not on the same page as God. And if we discriminate against such people, I take it that God feels the same way and the same anger and the same disgust that we feel when we hear of a black man being dragged behind a truck. And how does God view the rich to whom we may show favor and special attention? Verse 6. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into courts? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? You see, the perspective in James, and certainly uh, the perspective of many of the Old Testament prophets, is that actually the rich are the ones who oppress God's people and blaspheme against God. And such people may be held in high esteem by the world, but not by God. Uh, chapter 5 begins with these words. Uh, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, of course, this is not saying that no rich people will be saved. I mean, we look at us, we, basically on the world scale, are rich. Uh, some rich people will be saved, but proportionately less. When you look at the church today, uh, it is thriving in countries which we would class as lesser developed, where the populations are, on the world scale of things, poor. Jesus himself said, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is hard, but of course there are exceptions. And we are they, as is Abraham and Job, who James himself will go on to pick up on in his letter. So, uh, you see therefore, it is absurd to give priority and special favor to the, the rich. If we do so, we are not on the same page as God. And that is the first reason uh, to show no favoritism, to not be discriminating. Uh, the second reason is this, that if we do so, we are breaking God's law. Look at verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Of course, the law here refers to God's will for Christians revealed in the Bible. And it's royal because it's the command of the king, the royal king, Jesus. And this royal law has at its heart the commandment to love, to love your neighbor as yourself. God's law calls God's people to love all people without distinction. 
And when we discriminate, we are failing that law. We're in breach of it. When we pay special attention to some and neglect others, we are violating this law to love, all without distinction. And it's really serious. Even this example which James gives of a failure to welcome newcomers who are different to us may seem trivial, but it is not. It's a failure to love. Now then, uh, when we're accused by God's law, what is our natural instinct? Uh, is it not to get defensive? Uh, we may say, okay, I'm a bit prejudiced, but hey, surely that's just what it means to be human. Uh, I am a product of my background. Uh, in our defense, we may also say and look to other areas of our life. I'm making good progress as a Christian. I'm striving to be godly. I'm serving at the church. So isn't it a bit of a nitpicky thing to just season this one particular area and try to make a big thing of it? But when we engage those defense mechanisms, uh, James anticipates them and he addresses them. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. You see, God's law is a unity. And if you break one part of God's law, in effect, you are a law breaker. You have broken all of it. There are many aspects of my childhood which I am loath to tell my children. Because as a child, I was very mischievous and very strong-willed. And I think if I tell them some of my stories of my childhood... I thought it was one of my children then. Gosh, that's a worry. I wasn't able to continue. I'm glad it wasn't one of my kids. Because I feel that if I tell them about some aspects of my childhood, I, I think they'll think it will give them license to be equally naughty. I recall one occasion uh, when uh, we were living in Stockport in Manchester, uh, and next door was uh, a clubhouse and a large uh, crown bowl, bowling green. You know, one of those things which uh, OAPs do these days, maybe young people as well. Uh, there was a huge, nice bowling green, but this huge, then, um, clubhouse. And one day, my dad got a knock on the door. And it was the, uh, the guy in charge, the manager of the clubhouse. And he says, um, will you come with me, please? And so, my dad went with him, took him into the clubhouse, and there was this beautiful, big, sort of vista looking out over the, the green, and then our house. A huge sheet of glass, massive pane. But in the pane were all these little concoil fractures, uh, looks like bullet holes. And he says, look at these. My father said, well, yeah, well, how did that happen? He said, well, I've seen your kids with catapults, and they've been binging stones over here all weekend. And now I've got all these little holes in my window, and it's totally useless. It's going to have to be re replaced. And my father's salary was not that high. A stipend for a minister, of course, uh, probably about six months' worth would cover the cost of a window. Incredibly graciously, I think they let him off the cost of it. But nevertheless, to us kids, we're going, but there are only little holes. Is it that big a deal? The window is ruined because of those little holes. And so it is with God's law. God's law is like a sheet of glass. And if you damage just one of it, a part of it at one point, the whole thing is ruined. So you see, we can't say, well, this whole thing of prejudice is just a little command. Uh, we can't dismiss it as an irrelevance. It is incredibly 
important. Uh, God's law is a unity because behind it is the God who is one lawgiver. Look at verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. For if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So, if we break any of God's commands, we effectively are disobeying the lawmaker, God himself. We may never commit adultery in our life, but if we even lust or discriminate, we are a lawbreaker. We're not living as God calls us to live. And this also then means we can't play off one type of discrimination against another. We can't say, I hate racial discrimination, but religious discrimination or social discrimination is okay. Any form of discrimination is serious. The whole law is broken by doing it. And the last thing we're going to see in this passage today is this. It's going to answer this question. Why is breaking God's law a problem for us? Why is it a problem? And the passage we're looking at ends with two sobering, challenging verses. Look at verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. God's law shows Christians the path to be the people God created us to be. It shows us how to live. And as we tread that path, we find freedom from all the marring effects of sin. That is the law that gives freedom. Uh, God's law calls us to the path of love because love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of our purpose and design. That is what we were made for, being made in God's image. And living lives of love for God and for others is what we're called to do. And in living lives of love under Christ, there is true freedom for us and true flourishing. And so our speech and our actions shall be increasingly shaped by Christ's law of love. But our motivation for embracing the way of love should not just be fueled by this desire for our freedom and our flourishing. Because a second motivation is also given here. The law which gives freedom is also the standard by which Christ will judge his people. Now we know, don't we, that those who trust in Christ need not fear the prospect of God's eternal banishment on the judgment day of Christ. We know that our destiny, when we trust in Christ, is heaven, not hell. And therefore, on that final judgment day, we know there is no condemnation for those who have faith in Christ Jesus. But it does not mean that as Christians, on that final day, we will not face a judgment. We will face a judgment, but it will be a judgment for how we have stewarded our lives as Christians. It will be judgment before our Lord and King as to how faithful we have been in living the life he's called us to live under his loving and heavenly rule. And on that day, he will render judgment on each of us as Christians. Either he will say, well, good, well done, good and faithful servant. He will commend us or he will rebuke us. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, says this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. He's speaking to Christians and he says this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So you see, the challenge is here for all of us, if we truly trust in Christ, to live out the law of love. Uh, which of us can say, there is no scope for me to grow in my love for others without discrimination? Uh, which of us can say that, for me, I am doing all I can to show mercy to the needy? There is scope for all of us to grow in these areas. And there is value, therefore, in each of us asking what it practically looks like for me to speak and to act in a more merciful manner towards the needy. And if we are tempted to dismiss this lightly, verse 13 concludes by further developing this theme of judgment in an even more sobering way. Verse 13, it says this, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We have already seen in the letter of James that faith without deeds is not a true saving faith. And we will see that more when we come to the next part of the passage. As we put it last week, we are saved by faith in Christ alone, but saving faith is never alone. A changed heart inevitably leads to a changed life. And yet what if there is no evidence of, of this at all? of no evidence of loving without distinction? Uh, what if there is not even a flicker of mercy for the needy in our daily speech and our daily actions? It begs the question as to whether we have truly received God's mercy in Christ at all. It is possible, of course, to profess Christian faith with our lips, but to lack any true Christian faith in our hearts. And to have a merciful heart to have, an, a merciful, sorry, to have an unmerciful heart questions whether we have truly received God's mercy in our heart at all. And therefore, tragically, if we spurn God's mercy in Christ now, then, as this verse says, at the final judgment, we will face a judgment of condemnation without any mercy. What does being merciful to others look like? Uh, it's not just forgiving those who've wronged us. It is caring for the poor. It's reaching out to the needy. It's honoring them. It's not discriminating against them. And that's what is in view here. So may God help us to continue to think through what it means to love others without discrimination and to be merciful and to care for the needy, both as individuals and as a church family. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this passage challenges all of us uh, in different ways. Uh, none of us have hearts which are truly loving without discrimination. We all carry prejudices in our hearts. Uh, we all discriminate in different ways, and it is ugly. Uh, please, we pray, help our consciences to be sensitive to that. May we not be defensive. May we not dismiss it lightly. May we see the true gravity of it in your eyes.
And may we see the true ugliness of it in your eyes. And may you help us through your spirit, we pray, uh, to live lives which love increasingly without distinction, which live lives which love not just our neighbor, uh, but also our enemy. Help us to live lives of love which, li which are lives of costly love. And please, we pray, therefore, help us live lives to your glory. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.